Welcome to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hallstrom. How are you today, Chris? Doing good, Jody. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. You sound like you're feeling creative there. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think that would be? Well, because that's the topic today. We're talking about the difference between when to be creative and push boundaries versus familiarity. And this is something that could be, you know, with songs or production style or how to be creative, essentially, and give our two cents on it. Sure. Let's start off as thinking as musicians. All right. When would this be a case when you're thinking about this topic where it's like, I want to do something that's really contemporary or I want to stretch it a little bit when in creativity or how do you think about that topic? From a songwriting aspect or a production aspect? No, let's stick with the musician and the songwriting aspect first. Okay. My own personal perspective of it as an artist, I try to write something that would please me. Okay. That's a good start. That's the first start. From that point on, then it becomes a different situation. But when I'm writing the piece of music, whether it's something that is to please me, something to be an experiment for me, those are all different things that I have to think about as to style, genre, that kind of thing. It's very rare for me to sit down and just pick up a guitar or play on the piano or pick up a bass or hum a melody to not think ahead on the item that I'm writing. So you're saying that you have a picture in your mind or a sound in your mind that this is where I'm ideally going to end up? Or is that a little bit of a broader stroke when it comes to I'm going to write a ballad or I'm going to write a rock song or a pop song? Can you define that a little bit more maybe? It's a goal in mind based on whatever it is I'm hearing in my head first. Okay. That's as easy as I can make it as a musician from that point. If I sit down and I've got an electric guitar in my hand and I'm futzing around with high-gain amps, chances are I'm writing something that's hard rock or metal. (laughs) If I'm sitting down to a piano, I might write something that might be a little bit more ballad-oriented. Who knows? I don't play piano in the the idea of rock and roll or anything unless I've already got a rock song going. I don't start piano that way. It depends on the instrument that I pick up first. As a multi-instrumentalist, each instrument that I pick up already to me has a certain vibe to it. Yeah. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that because if I sit down and I start writing not on guitar, let's say that it's keyboards, piano-based, whatever. My piano chops are not even close to what my guitar chops are. Exactly. And that's not to boost my guitar chops. That's to lower my my keyboard playing ability. So so that will in itself lend itself to a different mindset and what I'm going to do with it. Right. But I'm also curious too, because both you and I have been doing this for uh, Too long. Non-insubstantial amount of time. Mm-hmm. I wonder when 
it sort of clicked for you. And I, I'm sort of skirting on the thing of being unique here, but kind of finding your own voice. Mm-hmm. How long had you been playing and stuff before you started realizing that you can't be everything all the time and, and sort of like promoting your own voice? I haven't learned that yet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I have always approached trying to have my own voice, whether I attempt to bring someone else's into the vision when I'm asked to do something very specific or not is a different question, I guess. I never tried. You never did? Because no. That, that- I wouldn't say that I did. And I turned down a lot of good paying gigs to be in the position to promoting my vision for me, if that makes sense. And to that end, I probably early on in my playing and learning had an inkling of the type of musician or band that I would want to be. And while I wasn't thinking in terms of Queen, it was along those lines. And I think it had something to do with an article that I read with an interview of Frank Zappa, (laughs) of Uh all people. That set me on a path of very clearly trying to retain publishing and being my own entity, much like he was. And much like Queen, you listen to Queen and they did a variety of different things and still all sounded like Queen. Yeah. And there was a point in my career where I had numerous people saying the same thing about any new piece of music that I did. Now, it's been years since then, and I've learned to try and take some of my fingerprint out (laughs) as as an example of things in that regard. But why is that? You say you want to take things out. Is that because you felt like they were either sort of detracting to the picture or was it just something that you did that you didn't like anymore? No, it wasn't that. It had more to do with suddenly being asked to write things for other people. And if I'm writing for somebody else and they have a goal in mind, it can't just be me. No, that's a difference. Uh, it's an entirely yeah, different scenario different. in that regard. And yeah. one of the things that I've been doing lately is going back to, of all things, a sheet of progressions from Miss Randall. Do you remember her at MI? Yes. That was about intro to melodic writing. And you can see I have this. It's yeah, sitting yeah, yeah. on the wall. And it's a plethora of chord progressions that I have long since ignored for a while and I've come back to them. And I've also been listening to things that I used to do and listening to actually an album that I just told you you should listen to by Big Wreck. And they're doing things that are not on the mainstream, but they sound sonically mainstream, but the writing in and of itself is not. And that is exciting to me. And that's where I'm starting to rediscover a love of the music again. Because I got to a point where I was trying to dumb down my writing in a sense and being boring. I think that's something that might be cyclical, but that, it that's is. good it's to hear. It's very cyclical. Right, yeah. But one 
thing that I wanted to touch on here because, you know, both you and I started on guitar. Mm-hmm. And I think it is very, very common, especially for guitar players, but I would argue just about any instrument, that when we start and we're learning, it's very difficult to be unique in the sense because we're always learning stuff from artists that we admire. Sure. So I think where guitar players especially end up painting themselves in the corner is that you try so hard to sound like your favorite artist. Now, it doesn't matter what that one is. Let's say that it's Eddie Van Halen or it was Ingve Malmsteen or Jimi Hendrix or any one of these players that sort of changed guitar playing. Mm-hmm. When you're younger, it can be one of those things where it's like, oh, did you listen to so-and-so? He can play just like Eddie Van Halen. Yep. And as you mature a little bit, at least for me, my mindset changed from being, oh, that's really impressive, to, well, why would I want to listen to that guy then? I'll just listen to Eddie. Right. You know, it's (laughs) like you don't have anything new to say. Mm -hmm. So I think the technique has to, whatever instrument that you're on, has to be able to allow you to be creative and say what it is that you want. So it doesn't mean that you need to have this massive technical ability on your instrument or be Olympian athlete on your chosen instrument, but you need to be competent enough where you can say what it is that you want to say. And I don't think until we reach that point, it's hard to be really unique and and have a different voice. I agree with that statement. Well, good. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But you bring up something there though as well as like, not being completely unique in all situations. Right. You said when you're writing for a different artist, it can either be that they're asking you to contribute whatever it is that you're doing, or it might be just to have a delicate enough input to kind of nudge them to wherever they need to go. Mm-hmm. Thoughts well, on that? Yes, and I have a very different viewpoint on that now. As a songwriter, my songwriting chops are good enough such that for most other people that I deal with now, I find out what it is they're really good at and then work on filling in the gaps. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Yeah. That's the best way I can say it. When I'm working with somebody else or for somebody else, I work to find out where their weaknesses are and be the strength in those positions. Got it. Yeah. I know a lot of people would sort of force their hand or, for want of a better phrase, be sort of like a one-trick pony, right? Where they And there's a lot of them out there. And there's a lot of people that don't realize that they have a weakness. Yeah. Until they're working with somebody else. Yes. But the other angle I'm thinking there as well is like when you're writing, let's say that you have a very unique sound and – People can just sort of like instantly identify that. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that can work both for you and well, against That's a total you. catch-22. It is. But I'm thinking here when you're doing stuff that is not necessarily there to promote you as an artist, where you're doing like, let's say, library stuff, mm-hmm. where we have to be unique and cool enough to where it's interesting But it's also not like, oh, you're sounding exactly like this certain artist. Right. 
I think it's good to be able to dial that back as well. How would you say that you go about, as an artist, to find your own voice? What are some ideas that you would have there? I, you know, I've never studied that. I can't really comment in a way other than the way I ended up doing it. When I first started learning to play, it wasn't by learning other people's songs. I did not start out that way. I started out learning chords and scales and arpeggios and all of the musical elements that you use to create songs. I didn't really start learning songs until much later. Okay. And which, how did that how did that affect your songwriting though? Well, I spent a lot of time messing around with chord progressions. Okay. And then finding out, oh, that's finding, oh, cool. this, oh, like, that, this works, that this sucks. is cool. That yeah, that kind of thing. The odd thing about it is though, it left me alienated in a sense from other musicians because here's a guy that came along who had a lot of technical prowess and understood the theory of everything behind it but couldn't sit and necessarily jam on a song unless I was told the progression that yeah. they were doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had the ear to do it, but at the same time, if you're getting around and you're fumbling and everybody's just like, oh, well, let's jam on this tune. Well, what's the chord progression? Or at least play it for me so I can hear it before we play. And that's not the ideal way that most people want to jam. Yeah, that's pretty much the opposite of jamming. I know. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't work very well for me for a long time until I started at least understanding how people were putting songs together. Right. That's another form of study, though, and I think that goes hand in hand when you start wanting to write stuff. Mm -hmm. I think just as we might emulate chops on an instrument, we start by emulating song structure, or it could be riffs, tonality changes, whatever happens to be, mm -hmm. right? I think those are really good exercises. I had a friend or somebody I, I befriended with, at MI, and he was teaching this class on the music business, but also writing and all these things. And he said something that, you know, when you're learning, if you want to learn how to write a hit song, at first, you got to really dissect what a hit song is. Yep. So it's like, how's the chord structure? What's happening? What's happening down to production techniques and things? And he said, it's not like you're ripping off a song. You're just learning how a hit song is made. Yep. And I agree with that statement. And to answer your question, the early stuff that I wrote, I ignored all that. Despite the fact that I was learning it at school, I ignored it much to my chagrin or de detriment. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd spent time learning it and doing it and got to a point where it became literally the catch-22 that I mentioned where you're saying if you know how to do all this stuff but you don't have the household name on it, it's, it's a frustrating position to be in. Yeah. Ultimately, though, we have to kind of look at the first thing you said as we started recording here today is trying to please yourself. Mm -hmm. If you don't do I, that, you're failing on the ground floor. Yeah, I think so too. Or at least you're just not going to be happy doing what you do. Mm -hmm. Because if you're writing songs that you don't really care about, then I would suggest that there are probably better ways to spend your life. Right? <laughs> Go watch television. <laughs> well, because you, you want to be happy, right? Yeah. We've all been in situations where we're bands or, or songwriting colleagues or whatever, where 
that might not trigger all the time. So it's like, that's how bands fall apart. It's like, mm -hmm. no, I'm not into that or whatever. Let's translate that into how it works with being a producer or engineer. What would be your thoughts on this? My thought would be that it's very, very similar, mm -hmm. at least from a mindset perspective. We all like to think as artists or engineers, producers, that we're really, really unique. Chances are that we're probably not as unique as we would all like to think that we are. Sure. The mindset is the same. I think we have to be, first off, just as a musician, we have to be really competent with our tools, where it is that we're using. To me, that's your usual suspects. Right? That's knowing how an EQ works or how a compressor works and when too much reverb is too much, you know, uh -huh. or whatever happens to be. But again, there, have a competency enough with the tools that we can get the job done. I would posit it like this. Have the competency on your tools or your musicianship to be able to have the freedom to act on instinct. Yes, that, that was poetic. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's absolutely right because as we're learning and we're doing all these, making all these decisions very consciously, they're not by instinct yet. We still have to think about them in 10,000 hours, right? And you just reach for stuff. Sure. And you just know how to get something across. Mm -hmm. When it comes to having sort of a style or a sound as an engineer or a producer is just as helpful as for a musician. Sure. Right? You have an identifiable sound. However, just as with a musician, I think it really, really helps you to be competent enough in whatever style to get something across. Right? So when you're starting out, if you get to, you're a metalhead, right? But you get to mix this hip hop track or a pop track. It's really, really important, I think, to have the ability to do that Maybe it's not your best work, but having the competency with the tools to deliver what that is sort of called for. Mm -hmm. and, and much I like think, learning to play music or learning all your chords and your scales to be a competent musician on whatever instrument it is you play, it's the same for engineers. You have to be competent on your console or your DAW and the plethora of tools that you can use to create sound in either format. Yeah, to sort of have any kind of, I think, longevity or certainly have a voice. Mm -hmm. right? I'm reminded as we're talking about this, one of my favorite instructors that I had at MI, and I know yours as well, is Daniel Gilbert. Oh, yeah. He Jeez. had, <laughs> oh, he was amazing. But He's he an had, amazing guitar player, but I also became... Mm, a thorn in his side within weeks of starting my first year. <laughs> That's for another time. It's I for think, another but yeah. time. Yeah. But he had a saying, because he, he was really, really big when he was teaching, and probably still is, really big on triads. Yeah. Right? Learning your triads on the guitar. And once you wrap your head around that, the flexibility and everything is going on. But he had a student one time that said, Hey, Daniel, I'm not really into fusion. Why am I learning this? Mm -hmm. And his answer, I think, was phenomenal. He goes, like, 
look, I don't give a shit about your style. This is how the guitar and music work. Right. Having those sort of barriers that when we're learning something, oh, no, I, I don't really need to know how to layer an 808. That's just what those rap guys do. Right. Well, what kind of ignorance is that, right? It doesn't mean that you can't use that in a new production that's not that style. Yep. Right. Well, that's how genres start shifting and morphing is somebody taking an element from one style or genre and pushing it into another and trying to figure out the result. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? But that's sometimes from mistakes, new things start happening. Yeah. Right? I'm still not sure how I feel about, you know, the uh, auto-tune effect on Cher, if that was a mistake or not, or it just sounded, oh, that sounds cool, you know? <laughs> right. But that became a thing. It did for a long time. For and a very long for time. Some, actually, for some genres, it might still be a thing. I haven't been listening to those things lately, but it could be. Yeah, it's probably not as much anymore. You know, Antares are still touting their vocal effects bundles, right? So there is that. I will say this. I did watch a movie the other night that involved singing, and it was painfully obvious to me when the vocals were tuned. And they weren't yeah. doing the T-Pain share effect, but they yeah, were. it was, just like, it was yeah. so obvious they were tuned. It was like, ouch, that is awful. <laughs> yeah. If you're not careful with that and it's not done well, it's uh, be painfully obvious. Yeah. yeah. But other mistakes also I'm thinking about here as well is, you know, when something starts becoming a production technique, right, was the Phil Collins, like, talkback mic thing from the SSL consoles, yes. right? When, so there, there's something that got implemented. It's like, oh, my God, this sounds huge. Let's use that. The, right? <laughs> the Phil Collins drum sound. <laughs> exactly, right? It was a super squashed like room mic. So um, there are all those things. I think the same thing here for production when it comes to finding your own style. There is that kind of vibe where unless we're really comfortable with what it is that we do in our skill level, mm -hmm. We have to kind of ask ourselves, like, are we unique or, and this gets a little spicy, or are we just incompetent in what it is that we do? And what I mean by that is that if something, it's really easy to be unique, but it's not easy to be unique and good at the same time. I will change that thought process just a little bit to say it's real easy to be unique. It's not easy to be unique and globally accepted. Yeah, I don't need to be globally accepted, but you know, I, I, I take <laughs> your point. Yeah, if you want to be sort of like at the forefront of like and being an in-demand voice, right? Somebody wants you for what it is that you do. Mm -hmm. That needs to have something good attached to it, right? It's like, yeah, did you hear the guy? He uh, he put an IR on the DI bass and it sounds like it's coming from down the hallway and all the drums are distorted. Well, that's probably unique, but that's probably not good, right? So unless you're creating, I don't know, underwater bass and drum, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's circle back and sort of put a bow on this when it comes to like familiarity then. Uh -huh. Emulating a certain sound and knowing what creates that, I think is of real importance when we want to be, let's say, a popular artist or whatever your genre actually is. 
knowing what's going on in that genre at the moment is good. And then it's up to you really to, if you want to really pursue that style or not, as Dave Pensato often says, like know what the competition is doing and be able to deliver on that. So let's say if there's a new production technique that starts creeping up a certain snare sound or whatever it happens to be, it's probably a good idea to be able to achieve that and know how that's done. But it doesn't mean that it has to be a part of your workflow all the time. I don't disagree. You have to be aware of the surroundings in order to be able to manipulate whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. That's what I think. Be good at your craft, whatever it is that you do. And with that, we'll move on to our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got this week? I started playing around with something that reminded me. Do you remember Rebirth that Propellerheads did? It was like an 808 and a 909 and a couple of like 303 basins back in the late 90s, I think. I remember the name Propellerheads. For the fact okay. that they did Reason. Yes. I Rebirth was the, I did not was use the, Rebirth. So that was Rebirth like was the precursor talk. to that. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. But that was a roundabout story of telling you my Friday find here. Uh, the company D16. Okay. They do the repeater plugin that I use with the Slate stuff all the time. But they also have a lot of other great plugins. And I just saw one of their new drum machines that came out. It's essentially an 808 on steroids. It's got a sequencer and all this kind of stuff. I believe it's pronounced Nephiton, number two. I was playing around with it, and I really, really enjoyed it. And the reason I bring up Rebirth is that it really reminded me of that workflow. Oh, okay. Where you're sitting around and you're just messing around programming rhythms and stuff and playing with sounds with that. I thought that was great fun. And I'm like, wow, this I'm playing with a drum machine. That was the last <laughs> time I did that. Back in and the so, 90s? <laughs> yeah, something like that. So it has to be my Friday find, Nephiton 2 by D16. What about you, Jody? This week, I'm going with the Contact Complete 14 Ultimate. They are doing a sale at Native Instruments. If you don't have this, you can get it for cheaper right now, which is always a good thing. The reason it's my choice is the fact that it is a plethora of very different things that you can use in a variety of different genres. In other words, it gives you a gigantic smorgasbord to choose from for whatever genre you want to work in or steal from one genre and push into another because they have a large amount of sounds and synths and effects and all kinds of things that help the musician and composer and even the recording engineer and mixer. It's all-encompassing, which is kind of apropos for today. (laughs) You really put a nice bow on it right there, Jody. Nicely done. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll need to be on our email list in order to be eligible for any future giveaways, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this incredible podcast. 
send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at insidetherecordingstudio.com with the word creativity, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Talk to you later, Jody. Thanks for listening, people. 